Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. The men were dispatched by their neighbor to go check on his house. The man was away on a business trip, which wasn't unusual. What was unusual was his wife was not answering the phone. She'd been anxious about being alone and was awaiting his phone call for when his plane landed. But the phone had been ringing off the hook every time the husband called. Understandably worried, he asked a few neighbors to go check on her. Now, everything seemed normal at first. The family car was there. The front door was unlocked, which allowed easy access. Their calls for anyone inside came unanswered until they heard the cries of the baby. They found her in the crib, and she looked like she'd been sitting in her own filth for some time. Cautiously, the men looked for the mother. Every room was empty until they came to the utility room. Upon opening the door, one of the men cried out in horror at all the blood. She shot herself, he cried. At that same moment, the husband called, hoping that the men had gained access to his home. They had to break the news that his wife was dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Their presumptions were wrong, though. What they failed to notice was the axe lying nearby the body. 
This wasn't suicide. This was murder. This week, I'll talk about the murder of Betty Gore. For this episode, I mainly used a two-part article in Texas Monthly by Jim Atkinson and John Bloom. And I hope I remember at the end of the podcast to tell you who John Bloom is also known as because it's pretty interesting and pretty funny. I also used articles by Kim Bryan on Soapboxy.com, Chanel Vargas on PopSugar.com, Karen Marie Shelter on Quora, and one by Alexandra Crown on LocalProfile.com. It's very easy to think that the grass is greener on the other side. We all kind of get that pang of jealousy when our neighbor gets a new car or when we hear of a friend getting married. It's natural. Some people go too far in their desire to have what belongs to someone else, even to go so far as to murder. For this story, we go to the town of Wiley, Texas. It's a quiet suburb of Dallas with a population of a little over 40,000 today. Back in 1980, when this all takes place, that population was less than half. To add to the stigma of this awful event, it occurred on Friday the 13th, and it would rock the small church-going community. The unfortunate husband on the end of the telephone line that night was Alan Gore. He was hours away on a business trip in St. Paul, Minnesota, for his company, the 3M Corporation. Alan made a really good living working in telecommunications, and he had to take frequent business trips. And it left him uneasy to leave his wife, Betty, and their two young daughters. See, Betty had been suffering from really deep depression, which was most likely postpartum depression from the recent birth of their baby, Bethany. That depression was affecting every aspect of life, especially their married life. So when Alan was told that Betty had shot herself, he was shocked, but at the same time, she had been very depressed. He was very relieved to find out that his older daughter, Elisa, had been staying with Betty's good friend, Candy Montgomery. And when he couldn't get a hold of Betty that night, he called Candy. She told him that she'd been over to the house earlier in the day and everything was fine. Elisa was going to stay over at her house to play with her daughter, who was about the same age. Candy had stopped by to grab Elisa's swimsuit, and when she was there, Betty and the baby were fine. Betty Pomeroy met her future husband, Alan Gore, in college. They began a romance that quickly turned into marriage. And at first, Betty worked as an elementary school teacher, while Alan worked in telecommunications. After their daughter, Elisa, was born, she became a stay-at-home mom. And after a few years, along came baby Bethany. Now, after that birth, as hard as Betty tried, she could not shake the baby blues. That's what they called it back in the 70s. Today, we call it postpartum depression. Of course, nowadays, you can go to a doctor for medication. You can get therapy. It's a very difficult experience, but it's manageable with help. But at this time, Betty was told to just get over it. And when she couldn't, the blame was placed on her. And that made her feel like a failure as a wife and a mother. Now, subsequently, Betty and Alan's marriage was suffering. 
Betty was frequently upset, and things were basically dead in the bedroom for quite some time. In the hopes of making things better, the couple had attended couples counseling at their church, and they had planned to go on a trip without the kids. And that was just a week away. Betty was looking forward to it so much that Alan was shocked that she would take her own life. However, upon closer examination of the crime scene, it was discovered that this was not suicide. It was an understandable mistake since the scene was a downright horror show. Betty was lying in a pool of blood on the floor. Her face was a mangled mess caked in blood. It appeared her right eye was gone. In fact, the whole side of her face was missing. That's why the men had mistakenly thought that she'd shot herself. Betty Gore had been attacked with an axe. She'd been hit a total of 41 times, 28 of those to the face. Detectives at the scene found a bloody footprint, fingerprints on the freezer, and noticed that the killer had taken a shower. Of course, the husband is always the most likely suspect, but Alan Gore had an airtight alibi. He was away on the business trip with three of his colleagues to verify for him. Still, police put him through some intense questioning, just hoping to find a lead. And after some time, Alan cracked and admitted to having an affair several months back. The woman in question was none other than Betty's best friend, Candy Montgomery. Candy quickly rose to the top of the suspect list. But how could an ordinary housewife and mother murder another mother, much less someone that was her friend? The women had met at their mutual church, the Methodist Church of Lucas. It was described as the center of Candy Montgomery's universe. She was always the organizer behind almost every event. Small towns thrive on social atmosphere at church. It really seems like the social aspect is sometimes more important than the religion. You get to see who's there, what they're wearing. You catch up on gossip. This was Candy's world. And she took it upon herself to bring the quieter, more reserved Betty Gore into her social circle at church. Candy was the opposite of Betty with her outgoing personality. And Candy could talk a stranger's ear off, whereas Betty preferred just to keep to herself. But the women became close, even going on date nights together with their husbands. Their daughters even became close. While most of the town wondered if a tiny woman like Candy could viciously wield an axe and kill her friend, police were starting to seriously consider it. She was the last person to encounter the victim. And if there's one thing everyone knew about her, it was that Candy got what she wanted. Her tenacity bordered on uncomfortable. And the more they learned about her, the more suspicious they became. Candy Wheeler knew early on what she wanted in life. A husband, kids, the house with the white picket fence, and all the luxuries that come with it. And for that, she set her sights on Pat Montgomery. Every man that she had dated was a potential future husband. Despite her lack of physical attraction to Pat, she felt that he could provide what she wanted. As an executive at Texas Instruments, earning $70,000 a year, he could give her that perfect life. 
she accepted his proposal of marriage, and soon they had two children. Now that she had all the things she dreamed of, you would think she would be content. She was not. Candy decided that she wanted to have an affair. So before I go on, I just want to give you a better idea of what Candy looked like. I mean, if you were like me reading about this, you may be imagining this total sex pod. But when I looked up pictures of her, I thought she kind of looked like a young Hillary Clinton with huge glasses. Just not what I expected. Now, looks aren't everything. They're not that important. But I want to give you an idea of what she looked like. I think for her, this big personality that she had was the force behind this woman. And many felt that they just could not say no to her. The affair was something that Candy put a lot of thought into, mulling it over for weeks. The moment she settled on the man with whom she would have the affair with happened quite by accident. It was late 1978 at the church volleyball court. Candy ran for the ball at the same time as Alan Gore. That was when she got a good whiff of how good Alan smelled, causing her to wonder what he might be like between the sheets. And even though he was a bit plain, the idea of an affair with her husband's friend really excited her. The two had always flirted with each other, and many times they would still be talking when everyone else left the room. She was convinced that Alan would be the one. However, it took some convincing to get Alan on board. She first approached him one night after choir practice, and as he was getting into his car, she jumped into the passenger seat and confessed her attraction to him. Now, he admitted a mutual attraction. About a week later, they ran into each other again, this time with Alan approaching her. Candy suggested the idea of the affair then, which Alan rebuked. Betty had just recently gotten pregnant with her second child, and he felt he couldn't do that to her. Candy told him that she just wanted some fun, nothing serious. There would be no strings attached, and it could end any time. It was just sex. Thinking about how difficult things were in the bedroom with Betty, Alan reconsidered. He needed a spark in his life, too. They officially began their affair on December 12, 1978 at the Continental Inn. And it went so well, they decided to meet regularly at the Como Motel. This was a sleazier and cheaper motel. At each meetup, Candy brought homemade lunch since Alan used his lunch hour at work for the meetups. And the affair made them both feel alive. At first, it was just about sex. But then the two began to enjoy their conversations and time with each other. As the months went on, the affair continued. To Candy's dismay, she found that there was more than just physical attraction. She was beginning to develop feelings for Alan. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Despite their agreement to end things if this ever happened, the affair continued. Candy even had the nerve to throw a surprise baby shower for Betty. Betty became more and more despondent after having Bethany. It so concerned Alan that he suggested to Candy that they end their affair. He and Betty were going to start something called Marriage Encounter at the church where they went, which was couples therapy. Plus, he had just started a new job. He wanted to put his focus on his family, and the affair could not continue. Candy wasn't sure how she could deal with the loss of not having Alan right at her disposal all the time. But she agreed. She would miss all the phone calls and all the little things Alan did for her. The relationship was way more than sex at this point. Alan gave her all the emotional attention that her husband Pat didn't. So tearfully, the two parted ways. After learning of the affair, police arrested and charged Candy with the murder of Betty Gore. At first, Candy stuck to her story that Betty was alive and fine while she was at the house. But then her story changed to one of self-defense. At the trial, Candy's defense attorney, Don Crowder, said she'd been to a hypnotist to recall the events of that fateful Friday the 13th. Candy had stopped by the Gores to ask if Elisa could come to the movies with the Montgomerys that night. Apparently, they were going to go see The Empire Strikes Back. She offered to take Elisa to her swim lesson to make this more convenient for Betty. And Betty, exhausted from dealing with the baby all morning, agreed. According to Candy, she came inside so that Betty could get Elisa's swimsuit. There, the women made some small talk. Until suddenly, Betty accused Candy of having an affair with Alan. Not first, she denied it but then admitted to it, saying it was a while ago. And that's when she said Betty went to the utility room and returned, clutching a three-foot axe, demanding that Candy never see him again. Candy agreed, and Betty told her just to take Elisa to the movies, setting the axe down. Betty said Candy could grab the swimsuit off the washer in the utility room. At this point, Candy said she just wanted to accommodate Betty and get the hell out of the house. When she looked at her friend's face, 
It was full of pain and sadness. And almost as a reflex, Candy put her arm on Betty to comfort her. And she said that's when Betty flew into a rage, once again grabbing the axe. The women struggled over this axe, with Candy claiming that Betty hit her with the flat side of the blade on her head. She swung again, and this time the blade missed Candy, but bounced off the floor, now slicing into Candy's toe. She screamed in agony. This was an absolute struggle to the death. As they pushed and pulled, Candy was finally able to knock Betty off balance. She grabbed the axe and brought the blade down on Betty's head. The events went in slow motion as she watched Betty slump to the floor with blood oozing out of her head wound. As she tried to get away through the utility doorway, just like out of a horror movie, Betty jumped up and slammed the door shut. Now once again, they're in this death struggle to gain control over this axe. And each time she pushed her away, Betty just came right back. Since the axe handle was covered in blood, it slipped out of Betty's hands, giving Candy the moment to end the struggle. She mustered all her strength and anger and fear and brought the axe down on Betty's skull again. She said she was filled with rage that she just let into the axe, hitting her 41 times. Her lawyer asked if she had intended to kill Betty Gore, to which she replied that she never wanted to hurt her friend. After the attack, she was in shock. She barely recalls the drive home. She wondered why she was wet. It was only when she was inside her house that she realized she had been covered in blood. Quickly, she grabbed her clothes and threw them in the washer. Next, she showered, and it was only then she realized her own injuries. As much as it hurt her toe, she replaced her sandals with tennis shoes and hurried to pick up Elisa and her kids from Bible school. Then she just went about her day as usual, trying desperately to not think about what happened. And Candy even kept her cool when Alan called her that night, asking if she'd seen Betty. After finding out his wife was dead, she was the first person he called. Alan's only concern, though, was for his daughter, that she hear the news from him about her mother. To the surprise of many, Pat Montgomery stood by his wife during her trial. He declared that the affair meant nothing because, quote, I love candy. Defense attorney Don Crowder said in his closing statement, there won't be a day in the life of Candace Montgomery that she won't remember she committed this act. Don't rob this woman. Don't rob her two children. Don't rob this husband and wife. This so-called self-defense tactic worked because after a four-month trial, Candy was acquitted of the murder charges. The Montgomerys made no comments, only letting it be known that they'd planned to move to Atlanta to escape what they had been through. The packed courtroom was very divided about the verdict. Some shouts of murderer were heard being yelled as the Montgomerys exited. And even decades later, there is still debate over whether Candy acted in self-defense. This attack was overkill. Self-defense isn't exactly 41 blows with most of those to the head and face. Candy's detractors say that Betty wasn't the one to pull out the axe. 
They think Candy intended to kill Betty out of jealousy and wanted to have Alan all to herself. They didn't buy the story that Candy told, like how she didn't remember showering at the Gores or most of the attack until she was under hypnosis. Betty was depressed, not homicidal. Lots of facts just didn't add up. The case made a national news, eventually leading to several books and a TV movie in 1990 called Killing in a Small Town, starring Barbara Hershey as Candy. The role got her an Emmy and a Golden Globe. One of the books written was called Evidence of Love by Jim Atkinson and John Bloom. Now remember, I said I would tell you his alias. According to IMDb, John Bloom is an investigative reporter, essayist, and actor from Little Rock, Arkansas, also known as Joe Bob Briggs. That's right, Joe Bob Briggs. I had to laugh when I found out about this. If you're not familiar with this character, Joe Bob Briggs hosted a TV show on the movie channel called Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater. This was in the late 80s. He always had a thick accent, dressed in the Western gear, had a cowboy hat on, and he would show these schlocky movies with reviews that told you how many boobs you would see in the movie or how many heads rolled. I was a huge fan because I loved horror movies, but I guess lately he's kind of veered off into right-wing territory from what I hear. I don't know. After the trial, Alan Gore remarried, but I guess that ended in divorce. Elisa and Bethany were eventually raised by Betty's parents. Candy and Pat did move to Georgia, where Candy became a counselor. However, her troubles followed her there. People never forgot what happened, even going so far as to leave bad reviews for her practice. That was the story of the murder of Betty Gore. Elizabeth Moss is set to star as Candy in a limited series based on the case. Jim Atkinson and John Bloom or Joe Bob Briggs, are on deck as consultants. Moss will executive produce a script, which is written by Robin Veith, who is written for Mad Men. So it sounds pretty good so far, but I haven't heard what network it will air on yet. And it must still be in pre-production because I haven't even seen a cast list yet, but it does sound like it'll be good. In really exciting news, I was just recently in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, a while back, the fabulous journalist, Tony Norman, did a feature on me for his sweat equity column, and he sent me a message the other day asking if I'd like to do a book review for the paper on the book, If I Disappear. So it's a thriller that centers around a true crime podcast fan who delves into detective mode when her favorite podcaster disappears. So kind of like right up my alley. I did really enjoy the book, and if you'd like to read the review, I posted a link on the Red Run Blonde Facebook page. And speaking of, please join the Red Run Blonde Facebook group. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, and I forgot to say, um, welcome to Jesus, to the discussion group. If you have case suggestions, email me at redrunblonde.com. And if you join Patreon, I will do one of your case suggestions. So I hope everyone is doing okay out there. And even though it seems that the virus is taking less of a toll, 
still very stressful and very scary. I was able to get second dose of the vaccine, but I know it's a shit show out there for everyone trying to get one. So hopefully that will get easier. Anyways, stay safe out there and catch you all next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.